trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, I feel like I need to warn you right up front. I need to caution you. I'm the kind of guy who crosses state lines. You know, typically it's just to visit family, but, you know, since that seems to be a big deal these days, I do. I cross state lines on a pretty regular basis, and I've actually been to the Four Corners area and, uh, you know, crossed four of them at once. So, you know, you can make whatever judgments you want about me, but I felt like I needed to put that out there just in the interest of full disclosure. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm one of those people. You know, there ought to be a law. There just should be a law about that kind of stuff. All right, sarcasm off. Welcome to the show. Glad you could join us today. This program exists not to tell you what to think, nor berate you if you think something a little differently than I think, but more to encourage you to be clear and independent in your thinking, to realize that there's a battle for your mind, and you are the one who needs to plant the flag and claim your mind as sovereign territory and own your own worldview. So to that end, I'm going to share with you some of the best information that I've been able to find. I spend pretty much every spare hour of my day trying to find good, informative sources, an informed take, a principled take on whatever it is that's going on in the world. And uh, I guess uh, it's a good thing there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. So I share that with you, and then uh, you do with that information as you will. It's up to you to make up your mind. But bottom line is I am here to provide resources for wrong thinkers, so I invite you to pull up a chair, find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers, and claim your rights as a free individual. <clears throat> now, I'm helped in this quest by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, HSLAmmo.com, Sewing and Quilting Center, also in St. George, Utah, GovernYourIncome.com, and SolarPatriots.com. You can just click on any of the links I provide in my show notes, and I do my show notes every single day that I do a show. So let's jump right in here. Um, <clears throat> the very pleasant surprise <clears throat> last Friday was that Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted on uh, all charges against him. Now, before this starts sounding too much like, you know, chest bumps and high fives and, yeah, you know, take it to the commies for mommy, you know, kind of stuff, I'm very grateful that justice prevailed here. And I, th I think justice did prevail. I think that the jurors were unanimous in refusing to, uh, to convict him on any of the counts that were thrown at him. There was a lot of stuff thrown at him that was pretty questionable. A couple of the counts actually dismissed once the case had begun. But I'm not going to sit here and pretend that the events that uh, ended two human lives and uh, left permanent uh, scarring and permanent uh, you know, psychological marks on another, as well as on Kyle himself, I'm not going to pretend like, hey, this was a great thing, and this is, you know, this is worthy of hoisting beers and singing songs together about it. I'm grateful that a young man will not be spending the rest of his life in prison, but I don't think we need to minimize the fact that um, there's, there's ample tragedy in this. Even if the people who were attacking him, you know, I know there's a sense, well, they deserved what they got. 
And, and they likely did. I mean, the jury agreed he was justified in doing what he did. But it's still a tragedy. And 17 years old, I mean, you've got a long life ahead of you. <clears throat> That's a heavy burden to be carrying with you. So I, I hope that uh, I hope for his sake that uh, that he can start to heal. I think uh, he probably has a lot of years of pain and who knows, probably therapy ahead of him having to deal with this. So let's let's not get carried away with celebration. Let's not, uh, you know, overdose on schadenfreude because um, as as satisfying as it was to see that a person does not have a duty to just stand there and let uh, the lawless mob tear you to pieces. It's tragic. Even when even when people engaged in bad activities are killed, there is a, there's an element of tragedy here. And if we too readily embrace that as you know a cause for celebration, I think we're on a path that uh, that leads to some pretty dark places. You can justify a lot of things when you stop looking at people as as uh, humans and see them as somehow less than human and therefore less deserving, you know, of uh, God's love, less deserving of, you know, their their basic rights. Now, unfortunately for Kyle's attackers, they forfeited many of those rights when they started to go after him in such a way as to reasonably cause him to believe that he was going to die or be beaten to a cripple if he didn't protect himself. So... Let me start on a grateful note. Yes, I'm very thankful to see that uh, that Kyle Rittenhouse uh, is is a free individual. Here's the disturbing part, though, and this is uh, okay. There's there's a mixed blessing here. I'm shocked, and in fact, I'm I'm just I'm a little bit stunned at how many people, at least within the media, celebrities, and so forth, appear to be so detached from reality that they are. Um, surprised at the verdict. I mean, it's pretty clear. You can tell people who actually watched the case and who followed it closely and and paid attention to what the prosecution was showing. I mean, um, like it or not, Kyle Rittenhouse owes Gage uh, Grosskreutz a a little bit of a debt of gratitude because uh, I think if if Grosskreutz had been been shot dead as Anthony Huber and uh, Joseph... uh, I'm trying to remember his name. Sorry. The 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 guy who set it all in motion. Rosenbaum. Thank you. Uh, if if Gro- if Grosskreutz had been shot dead like the other two, he would not have been sitting on that witness stand and he would not have made the case, the ironclad case that I was only shot after I pointed my pistol at Kyle Rittenhouse. I really believe that was the turning point. That was when it was clearly established that, okay, Kyle wasn't just running around randomly shooting people, but there's this narrative out there that's that saying things like, well, you know, he crossed state lines. Like, suddenly that matters. You know? <laughs> wow, he crossed state lines? Oh, yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of different uh, lies about Kyle Rittenhouse. We're going to spend a little bit of time debunking a few of those. But what about those people who were shocked at the verdict? What about the ones, I mean, come on, Saturday Night Live did, uh, you know, just, full-on communist agitprop, you know, to try to cope with it. There's there's Jesse Jackson standing up there in Chicago saying, the only cure here is a communist revolution. And So there's some people that are seriously losing what little grasp they had of reality. How could they have been so misled? 
And I'm afraid I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at the media on this one, the the mass media. And I'm thinking they failed. And they failed hard. And this is, may sound a little bit vindictive, but I'm going to go ahead and put it out there. Um, you know, Nicholas Sandman, the Covington High School kid who was so ruthlessly slandered by CNN and other media outlets for a, a, a pro-life demonstration that was taking place at the Lincoln Memorial a couple of years ago. You remember this, the most punchable face kid, the kid wearing the MAGA hat. Oh, man, they were so sure this kid is a racist because he supports Trump and blah, blah, blah. Well, Nicholas Sandman and his attorneys took these uh, media outlets to task. And the, the exact amount of money that he was paid is is supposedly secret. But it's also pretty well understood. It was upwards of $250 million that ended up in his hands. I think Kyle Rittenhouse may be due for an even bigger payout by these same media outlets. And we'll, we'll go into some detail as to why that is. Why couldn't the press accurately report the facts of his case? And you probably already know the answer, right? Because there's, there's a narrative. Well, you know, this was a Black Lives Matter protest and these mostly peaceful protesters, why he just went there because he wanted to kill them. But is that really the case? The jury sure didn't see that. Kind of makes you wonder if, uh, if the media is in some way trying to foment division, trying to exacerbate racial tension. Okay, maybe I'm to the point where I, I no longer wonder. I, I think they're definitely doing that. I know they're trying to get people at one another's throats. And I think it's reprehensible that they would do this. When we come back from the break, I've got a great essay from Jesse Singal that explains how the, the people who are shocked at the verdict and their disconnect from reality can be traced directly to all the ways that the media failed. And by the way, if you haven't seen uh, CNN's reporting after Kyle's acquittal, oh my goodness, their their general counsel must have been telling them, hey, you've got to get your reporters out there. You've got to make sure that these people are talking about how hey, there's, there's knowledge that was previously not known to the public. By the way, I'm calling BS on that one. It was known to the public, at least for those who were willing to set aside their agenda and look at the facts we'll take the media to task this is going to be a fun trip to the woodshed we'll be back in just a moment this is the brian hyde show This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. You can go to their website link in my show notes. It's also right there in my sponsor section of my website at thebrianhydeshow.com. Bottom line, you're looking to stock up on some food storage? Smart move. Now, I'd like to save you 25% on whatever you order through lifesavingfood.com. All you do is enter my last name, Hyde, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code, 25% discount. That's just for my listeners, and that is a better discount than you can get if you went to ReadyWise themselves. So a tip of the hat to uh, to my good friend, uh, Kendall Whiting, who is the owner of lifesavingfood.com. It's a great time to to make some of those preps. They also make good, food, good uh, uh, Christmas presents. 
Oh, I know. You roll your eyes. How, how would I feel if someone gave me food storage? Well, you know what? This year, I think I'd actually feel pretty good about it. So consider it. Let's talk about the disconnect. The Rittenhouse verdict shouldn't have been a surprise. Now, Jesse Singal is no fan of Kyle Rittenhouse. He says Rittenhouse was no hero, but he says the failure of the media helps explain why so many people expected him to be convicted. Jesse Singel says a lot of people are surprised that Kyle Rittenhouse, the young man who shot three people in Kenosha, Wisconsin last year, killing two of them, was just found not guilty on all charges, including on two counts of homicide. And the furious responses are pouring in right after the verdict came down. Murderer! White privilege! America! Yes. (laughs) They all begin trending on Twitter. MSNBC quickly published a piece titled, Kyle Rittenhouse trial was designed to protect white conservatives who kill. A number of very high-profile figures, ranging from New York Mayor Bill de Blasio to Wajahat Ali of the Daily Beast, expressed similar sentiments immediately after the verdict on Twitter. Now, to these observers, Rittenhouse's acquittal on all charges confirms what they already knew about our justice system. It's a grotesque machine that will forever forgive white supremacist violence. From their perspective, Rittenhouse clearly killed two people illegally, and it's baffling that he got away with it. But Jesse Singal says, for those who've watched this case closely since that terrible night in Kenosha, this isn't a surprising result. The large amount of video footage available since almost the very start of this controversy revealed that Rittenhouse always had at least a decent self-defense claim and potentially quite a strong one. The fact that so many people were so confused about the facts of this case, not only on the self-defense question, but on basic matters like whether the people he shot were black or white whether he took his rifle across state lines or whether he had pre-existing family or social ties to Kenosha, suggests that despite all the understandable talk of the right's fake news problem, partisan news coverage and punditry on the left is becoming a serious problem in its own right. Rittenhouse says he decided to take part in helping to protect and clean up Kenosha after watching the wave of destruction that hit the city following the police shooting of a black man named Jacob Blake. Videos of him at various points during his day there showed he helped clean graffiti off of a school, interacted with protesters peacefully, and asked them if they needed medical assistance. He apparently had some rudimentary first aid training as a lifeguard, but contrary to what he told someone filming him at one point, was not an EMT. And he took part in guarding various businesses, all while toting an AR-15 style rifle. It was an AR-15. You can just call it that, okay? Then darkness fell and things turned catastrophic. The violence appears to have been sparked by Joseph Rosenbaum, a deeply disturbed man with a tragic history who'd just been released from a hospital following a suicide attempt, who witnesses said had threatened to kill Rittenhouse earlier in the day, and who could be seen in one video seeking to provoke a group of armed protesters by yelling, shoot me, nigga, repeatedly. Rittenhouse testified that Rosenbaum ambushed him, and that appears to be borne out by the videos. Rosenbaum chases him a significant distance. Rittenhouse, now hemmed in by parked cars and lacking an easy escape, only shoots Rosenbaum after he lunges at him. Now, most of this was clear from the video that went online shortly after news of the killings went viral. But more recently released drone footage shows those final moments with greater clarity than before. Rosenbaum really was reaching for Rittenhouse or his rifle at the moment he was shot. The other two men Rittenhouse shot chased him after they and others in the crowd realized he'd shot someone. 
Video shows that Anthony Huber, who was killed, caught up with Rittenhouse and struck him with a skateboard. Gage Grosskreutz, who survived and testified during the trial, acknowledged in a devastating moment for the prosecution that at the moment Rittenhouse shot him in the arm, he was pointing his own handgun at the teenager. Now, according to Wisconsin state law, lethal force is only legally permissible if someone reasonably believes that such force is necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to himself or herself. Even if a defendant provokes a confrontation, they're still allowed to resort to deadly force if those criteria are met and they've exhausted any other reasonable means of escape. Little else matters, really. Not the politics of the case. Not whether Huber or Grosskreutz thought they were chasing someone who had just killed someone in cold blood, which they may well have been. Although, I have to say, given that it was a riot... And given that uh, we have seen that kind of behavior elsewhere, I'd be a little more skeptical. Oh, they just had the boldest motives. motives. No, they were part of a mob. And what mobs do is they turn off their thinking and they become very animalistic. So, you know, that's my take. But for what it's worth, there you have it. Now, the author here says many observers, myself included, thought Rittenhouse couldn't legally carry the AR-15 rifle he used in the shootings. This would only have been a misdemeanor violation anyway with a maximum sentence of nine months, but it turned out to be a moot point. The judge tossed the charge because that law applies to minors armed with rifles or shotguns only if those weapons are short-barreled, as U.S. News puts it. So whatever one thinks about uh, these laws, they are the relevant laws here. And they made for an uphill battle for the prosecution all along because the video showed that Rittenhouse was in fact threatened by the people he shot. Now, the videos alone didn't prove that a self-defense claim would definitely prevail, of course. But they did come pretty close to proving. Rittenhouse did not instigate any of the shootings in question. All of this was right there on video and in the relevant statutes for anyone with eyes to see. So the question is, why did so many people, including influential people who are paid to get the news right, why did they look away? Jesse Singal says, I first wrote about the case in a pair of newsletter posts not long after it happened. I was astounded at the distance between what was on the video and what news outlets were were saying. First, he allegedly killed a protester by shooting him in the head, is how Tess Owen described the violence in Vice on August 27th of last year. Writing in Slate, Mark Joseph Stern wrote that Rittenhouse placed himself at the center of the violence and then escalated it by shooting a man in the head. Countless other journalists and online personalities treated the case similarly. Even some elected officials got in on the act. Rittenhouse was quickly and publicly labeled a white supremacist domestic terrorist by Representative Ayanna Presley on Twitter. And after Rittenhouse was released on $2 million bail, an amount raised by supporters, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez weighed in, does anyone believe Rittenhouse would be released if he were Muslim and did the same thing in a different context? For people who say systemic racism doesn't exist, this is what it looks like. Protection of white supremacy baked deep into our carceral systems. Now, this endless invocation of white supremacy as an explanatory factor in this controversy was strange, given that all three people Rittenhouse shot were white, and given that contra Presley's claim, no evidence ever emerged that he had any connection to white supremacists. Presley was actually recently asked by Fox News in an admittedly leading email if she still stood by the comments, and she didn't respond. 
After the case went viral, Rittenhouse was embraced as a right-wing cause celeb and photographed with members of some of the Proud Boys at a bar, but there's no evidence he had any prior connection to that or any other radical group. Vice and Slate were far from the only outlets that contorted the facts of the case or published truly dishonest analysis. In fact, Intercept columnist Natasha Leonard wrote that Rittenhouse chose to travel to Kenosha, Wisconsin and hunt down anti-racist protesters with an assault rifle. An astonishingly misleading description of the actual chain of events. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments, but, uh, you know... You might want to take some blood pressure medication as we go through some of the more egregious lies told by the media. Not to worry, though, we'll debunk them and have a couple other thoughts on this matter as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So, yeah, Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted. The media and many people who apparently follow and believe the narrative that was put forth by the media were shocked. And, And there's still just some blatant, how can you go out there and just kill people and get away with it? There's, there's absolutely no acknowledgement of the responsibility that, uh, that, is, is, that belongs to the people who chose to be out there rioting in the first place. I love how Tom Woods puts it. He goes, oh, just these, this group of fine Americans was having a perfectly good riot, and here came Kyle Rittenhouse and ruined it by showing up to, to stand up for this community. And it kind of raises an interesting question about uh, at what point would you and I be justified and this is an individual answer, by the way. It's not like there's a blanket way to approach this. But when would we be justified to stand up and, and protect our community? I mean, the police clearly had stood down. They clearly were not doing anything to stop the destruction of property and the, the rioting that was going on. I mean, I can't tell you, I can't tell you with, you know, exactness, well, I know it would be this threshold here. But the more I think about it, the more I realize... There is a point where I think I would I would feel it was my duty to stand up. And that doesn't mean go kill anybody who I don't like. That just means to stand up and, you know, clean graffiti to to protect innocent life or the property of people who, you know, otherwise aren't being represented uh, through the tax dollars they're paying, you know, for the government to protect them like it's supposed to do. Let's come back to the article here. Again, this is from Jesse Sengal, who says other progressive writers expressed outrage that when Kyle Rittenhouse took the stand, he began sobbing. Jamil Smith wrote in Vox, isn't it simply it isn't simply that a killer cried about his own fear rather than the lives he took. It represented the exercise of entitlement, the enduring perception of the youth of white men and boys who commit illegal acts. Now, of course, the fact that Rittenhouse also cried and vomited when he turned himself into police suggests that there's at least a chance he was actually traumatized by what happened. But telling readers about that prior incident would complicate the narrative that he is an embodiment of entitled white evil. Every step of the way, a subset of journalists and commentators have done everything they could to paint Rittenhouse in as negative a light as possible, even when doing so has involved distortion or selective forgetting. 
take the endlessly regurgitated claim, well, he crossed state lines to get to Kenosha. First of all, this is geographically trivial. Rittenhouse lived with his mother in Antioch, Illinois at the time. Antioch borders Wisconsin, meaning Antioch residents can cross state lines to grab a cup of coffee. Second, the point of that language is to make the gun charge sound more serious, to portray Rittenhouse as an outsider seeking carnage or both, but all of this was debunked months ago. He didn't bring his rifle across state lines, full stop. A friend bought it for him and kept it at his friend's stepfather's house in Kenosha. And those few journalists who did deep reporting into the case, Charles Homans of the New York Times Magazine and Paige Williams of the New Yorker, both deserve plaudits for their work. They quickly established Rittenhouse had many ties to Kenosha, where he worked as a lifeguard, where his father, grandmother, aunt, uncle, and a cousin all lived. But see, the overall effect of all this bad journalism and irresponsible inflammatory punditry was the creation of an entirely separate version of events that bore almost no resemblance to what really happened that awful night in Kenosha. It was fake news in the same sense progressives use that term. The creation of alternative realities as a result of partisan outlets and journalists more interested in narrative promotion and ideological point scoring than fact-checking. And, of course, these false and distorted ideas about the Rittenhouse case didn't emerge fully formed from a vacuum. For a very long time, American authorities at every level really did look the other way in the face of vigilante right-wing violence. Now, you have to go back a long ways to, to get this, right? Reconstruction failed in large part because federal authorities would not protect black Americans from a terrifying onslaught of white violence in the South. And the much more recent racial reckoning that followed George Floyd's murder led many Americans to become more attuned to the possibility of racism lurking within everyday interactions, especially those involving law enforcement. So Jesse Singal says it's understandable how to the casual onlooker, all these viral claims about Rittenhouse being a white supremacist who went out looking for trouble might feel true, might feel like the kind of thing that could happen in America. Now, whether we should fit the Rittenhouse case into that pre-existing historical mold is a separate question, and all the available evidence suggests it would be foolhardy to do so. And think about the consequences of this misunderstanding. Millions of people having false ideas about Kyle Rittenhouse, what he did, and the justice system's treatment of him. It will surely increase the probability of post-trial violence, for one thing, because people will be surprised that such an obvious case of murder was acquitted. Obvious, by the way, in quotation marks. And even if that outcome is averted, this result will be taken as more proof that the system is beyond redemption. This uh, sense of nihilistic hopelessness, that justice for Jacob Blake would be impossible through judicial channels, is part of the reason that Kenosha burned in the first place. And it's terrible to think of the consequence of this belief spreading further. And Jesse Singal says the misinformations also had a pernicious effect on conservatives. It's been clear to many of them early on that the media wasn't treating this case fairly and that to get a more accurate version of the story, they would have to turn to alternative news sources. Now, he says many of those sources are right wing and not particularly concerned with truthfulness either. They tended to portray Rittenhouse as some sort of bona fide American hero when we obviously shouldn't be encouraging 17 year olds to embrace the roles of paramilitary foot soldiers. Okay, this is where I'm going to have to part company with uh, with agreeing with uh, with Mr. Singal. He didn't go there to act as a paramilitary foot soldier. 
He was well within his natural rights to be within Kenosha, to be there offering aid. He was within his natural right to be armed, and he was definitely within his natural right to defend himself. So let's let's not pretend, well, you know, the situation got worse because Kyle showed up. It was bad enough that a 17-year-old felt he had to show up along with other volunteers rather than just sit there and let it spiral out of control. Now, I do agree with Jesse Single that if you continue to drive conservative Americans away from mainstream outlets, it's just going to exacerbate our national divide and the problems that come from it. From conservative belief in conspiracy theories. By the way, how come it's only conservatives, right? I think some of the biggest conspiracy theories have been from the left involving Kyle. But, you know, theories like QAnon or Stop the Steal. Oh, is that just a theory? People really don't distrust? To the increasing distrust, fear, and hatred that Americans have of the other political party. Now, even if we can understand where this false narrative about Kyle Rittenhouse came from, he says we should not excuse this sort of fake news. Thank you. The mainstream media has a responsibility to report facts honestly, whether or not they line up with pre-existing narratives or ideological priors. If they fail to do so, their actions will only drive America further down its present dangerous path. So I don't even agree totally with everything Jesse Singal says, but I do agree with the conclusion that the media's handling of this was reprehensible. In fact, I, I, I try to ascribe good motives to pretty much anything anybody does. Even if somebody cuts me off in traffic, I think, man, that person must really have to pee. or so, I don't know. They're, they're in a hurry for some reason. Maybe their wife is giving birth. I don't know. But I try to give you know some sort of noble motive to what they're doing. I can't, at least not with the, with the way that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was so demonized. And I'm including in my show notes, I won't go into this uh, here, but uh, Miranda Devine has a very handy debunking of the 10 most heinous lies about Kyle Rittenhouse that were being shamelessly promoted by the American press. Now, there is a silver lining here, and I, and I would be remiss if I didn't point this out. The lies were so shameless and so blatant that there are a number of people on the left who said, Oh, my goodness. I've been duped. How is it that I did not know, you know, that Kyle was putting out a dumpster fire, literally a dumpster fire? How did I know, you know, that he had family ties? How did I not know he had family ties in Kenosha? That he didn't transport the rifle across state lines? That he wasn't forbidden by law to to possess the rifle? How did I not know these things? And, And they're realizing it's because the legacy press lied through their teeth and misrepresented the facts deliberately. They got red-pilled, and they got red-pilled pretty hard. Now, I'm not saying that with some kind of, you know, ha-ha, serves them right. I'm like, good for them. Because to get red-pilled, you have to have a degree of intellectual honesty to admit, oh, my word, I was totally wrong about that, or I've been misled on that. And that's where the, the pursuit of truth begins. Starts with admitting where you are and then working your way towards that sunlight. So let's be grateful for small favors. And that is a small favor. Again, check out the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. You'll find both of the articles referenced linked here. We'll be back in just a few moments.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. These are the folks I would recommend you talk to if you are purchasing a home anywhere in the state of Utah. Heather has the experience, and I'm talking decades of experience, and the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. doesn't matter if it's a VA loan to a traditional loan to a reverse mortgage, even a refinance. Talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage by calling 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, and you can visit their offices in St. George, Utah at 619 South Bluff Street. All right, let's talk about, well, let's talk about the failure of democracy. Paul Rosenberg always can be counted on for an insightful, informative take on current events. He's got kind of a down and dirty take, and this is not just on the Kyle Rittenhouse case. We're going to expand it a little bit here. But he talks about how democracy has largely become an illusion. And that puts us, unfortunately, you and me, at a little bit of a crossroads in the sense that, uh, okay, how much allegiance do I give to an illusion? Rosenberg says the uh, events of the past two years have come in so fast and so hot that I think most people haven't yet digested them. Human psychology doesn't incorporate new and difficult changes very well. It tends to rather pretend that everything will come back to normal for sure any minute now. But he says this gap between perception and acceptance makes us vulnerable. And so it's massively in our interest to narrow that gap and close it. So very briefly, he says, I'm going to try to help that process along. Paul Rosenberg says, however much hold democracy has had in the past, it clearly hasn't held over the past two years. Our daily lives are ordered by edicts, not democratic processes. National, state, and local potentates have locked down their populations, demanded them to cover their faces, and ordered them to accept untested and sometimes dangerous medical treatments. They've forbidden alternative treatments. They've sent policemen to break up religious gatherings. And we've watched all these things day by day for almost two years. Now, this was not done by votes in legislatures. It was done by executive orders without checks or balances. Now, we can describe that as either dictatorial or tyrannical, but we cannot call it democratic. It simply is not. And even if we believe that democracy will return after the crisis is over, there will always be another crisis, and ignoring democracy will be easy from here on. Politicians will rhapsodize on the virtues of rule by edict when it's necessary, and will be eager to enjoy that power again. However solid democracy was or wasn't in the past, his point is it's clearly just an illusion now. In the United States, rights were things that the government could not take away, save by criminal due process. Not only was this specifically stated, but it was stated in the supreme law of the land. That meant nothing. No subsequent law, no ruling, no executive order, no anything could challenge these rights, period. And yet, bodily autonomy has been proudly trashed. Mass firings have been publicly ordered and backed by tremendous penalties. Even forbidding medical care, regardless that it will result in death, is openly lauded and implemented. 
unless you have the jab. There is no honest way to sugarcoat such things, he says. Rights are now subject to non-democratic edicts. These are facts. No amount of clever justifications or pithy slogans will make them anything less, and whether or not we face them, he says, posterity will. Sorry, that's that's kind of a spoonful of reality, right? No sugar to help uh, make it a little more palatable, but definitely still something worth thinking about. And it's bad enough when government officials, you know, chose to shut down large sectors of the economy and to deem certain individuals and businesses as unessential. But by doubling down on that earlier mistake and further restricting people's civil rights, uh, Robert E. Wright from the American Institute for Economic Research says, these authorities are sowing the seeds for revolution. I want to share a couple of excerpts from a recent essay that he had published over the weekend. I'm sorry, this was this was not published over the weekend. This was published March 19th of 2020. Sorry, I needed to check that date. I just found it this weekend. It was republished on the AIER.org website. He says, before the COVID-19 panic struck in March 2020, many Americans were already disgruntled with major institutions and leaders from POTUS to SCOTUS and Congress to the value of college and health care. And while few could articulate the problems with the nation's health care, higher education, or retirement policies, many sensed they were being expropriated. Some were beginning to think seriously about secession. A few began to chronicle the long train of abuses and usurpations needed to justify a Lockean revolution. But he says most Americans, though, were fat, literally, and happy in the sense of being prosperous, easily distracted by the modern circuses called sports. While palpably imperfect, life was good, or at least good enough to remain peaceful. Widely available alcohol, marijuana, opiates, and happy pills acted much like Soma in Brave New World. While Twitter and Facebook allowed millions to vent in ways that made them feel, if not important, at least heard by some small fraction of the herd. But in mid-March 2020, government fiat and private panic stripped away much of that status quo antivirus. Collegiate basketball March Madness gave way to a pernicious March Madness devoid of beloved and distracting sports and associated gambling, which, if nothing else, provided the hope of instant riches. He says the same misunderstanding of elementary statistics now has many fearful of early death. Due to dramatic declines in the stock market, Americans no longer feel very wealthy or fret about future income. And, and they fret about future income. After enjoying extended spring breaks, most college students find themselves thrust into sterile online classes that provide little of the social or intellectual stimulation they crave. Seniors wonder if standing job offers will be honored, how they'll repay their student loans if they're not. Many of their parents also wonder if they'll have jobs much longer. They rely on chemical substances, prescribed or not, or those reliant on chemical substances wonder if they will be able to resupply. Thankfully, the Internet fills many of those cracks in the old edifice, he says, but many knowledge workers can maintain and even increase their productivity by working from home. Streaming services provide numerous distractions and diversions, and as long as production and delivery services continue, food and supplies can be ordered online. Moreover, social media platforms find themselves enlivened by people who usually have better things to do. If Internet and essential services like electricity, water, and payments remain up, and restrictions on civil liberties like travel bans, shelter-in-place orders, etc., soon end. 
the spread of the virus, he says Americans will have simply moved a small step closer towards revolution. Watergate and Vietnam will fade from collective memory, replaced by memories of the failures of 9-11, the Iraq and Afghanistan occupations, the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, the financial panic of 2008, the Obamacare rollout fiasco, and the botched early reaction to COVID-19. Calls for a multitude of reforms will ring out left and right, but he says aside from some administrative and budget reshuffling, little of structural consequence will likely occur, and the nation's fate will rest on the timing and nature of its next crisis. Now, Robert E. Wright says, if government responses to the pandemic remain in place but fail to stop its spread, pre-existing doubts about the efficacy of major institutions could burgeon into a crisis of legitimacy. Dissent would start on the Internet, but if it goes down due to cyber virus, censorship, or other causes, its absence would foment acts of civil disobedience because, frankly, there would be few other ways for people to vent their anger or fill their long, lonely hours. Loss of electrical, fuel, food, or water services would compound anger with fear. Then you'd see traditional street demonstrations spread the virus rapidly, achieving spontaneous herd immunity at the cost of overtaxing a healthcare infrastructure weakened by decades of cons, certificates of need, and other barriers to entry. He goes on to talk about the different phases that would kick in. Now, the bottom line here, I'm just going to skip ahead. He says, if travel and commercial restrictions don't stop the rapid spread of the disease, and keep in mind this was written back in March of 2020, at some point sooner than later, the government needs to own that fact, restore civil liberties, admit that it failed to provide one of the few clear public goods entrusted to it by all, like an ample supply of accurate tests, and suffer the political consequences from rising or perhaps even more damaging, not rising death tolls. But he says, compounding one mistake allowing mission creep to divert resources away from the government's presumed health mandate with another unduly restricting civil liberties in a desperate attempt to make up for the first failure is a recipe for revolution. Now, he doesn't say that lightly. He says that's a putrid dish that nobody wants, but like COVID itself, we might get served anyway. Just for the record, I'm not calling for revolution but like, like the fog appears when the conditions are right, I think revolution appears when the conditions are right. And I'm just sounding a warning along with others here. The conditions are looking pretty right. Let's be careful. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I trust you came to do a little bit of thinking with me. Good. Pull up a chair. Make yourself comfortable and settle in. Got some great stuff to share with you this hour. 
And it's brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, GovernYourIncome.com, and SolarPatriots.com, as well as the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George. In fact, I want to just go off for a moment about uh, it's been cold. Lately, I've, I've been experiencing, I had my first real frosty morning where I had to go out and, and scrape the car's windshield, and I was like, man, it's, uh, it's, it's officially winter. And I was thinking, you know what I really need is a good, warm blanket. Well, if you are into sewing, and I mean, there is no place to, to go like the uh, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George. They also carry the the cuddle fabric. It's a really soft fabric for blankets. It's actually on sale, 35% off for the month of November. So, you know, you got got a little time to get there and, and uh, choose from a great selection. And if you have anything to do with sewing or quilting or anything embroidery, these are the folks you want to talk to. They can not only get you set up with the machines that will make it a snap, but they can train you. They can fix your machines. Be worth your time to go to sewingquiltingcenter.com for more information. Or if you're in St. George, Utah, swing by 779 South Bluff Street and say hi to uh, Eric and Teresa Alsop. They're the owners of, of this wonderful business. So I'm going to share something with you that uh, I, I don't want to make this sound like I'm trying to demonize or otherwise antagonize anybody who has taken the COVID vaccine. I'm pretty, I think I'm pretty clear on uh, why I won't do the, the vaccine as long as it's being mandated, as long as someone's trying to force me to do something against my will, I'm going to have to dig in and say no. And it's, it's not a matter of, you know, well, you know, I'm, I'm just hesitant. No, I'm, I'm adamant at this point. I will not be forced to participate in something without, you know, my informed consent. And, and it's not a choice, okay? People will say, well, you know, you have a choice, but uh, you have to make the right choice here. A choice is, hey, what would you like, uh, Coke or Pepsi? There's a choice, right? This is coercion. And, and thankfully, I'm, I'm in a position right now where I'm, I'm not subject to, well, Brian, if you want to keep your job, you're going to get the jab. That's not a choice. That's strong-arming. But unfortunately, this is where a lot of people find themselves. And, and there's more information that's coming out, as you're going to hear, about uh, some of the, the shortfalls on the vaccine, how it was sold to us. By the way, boosters are now in line to be mandated. That's the latest I've seen. It never stops. So if you've had the vaccine, please understand, I don't think you're stupid. I don't think you're evil. I don't think you're weak. Different people have been forced into this from a lot of different angles. And, you know, everybody has their own reasons, but it's a decision you should make yourself. But I'm going to point out some of the reasons here why those who have not taken the vaccine right now are counting their lucky stars that they haven't. It's an article from Jordan Schachtel. This was uh, published on Substack. I've got a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. It's titled, The War on the Unvaccinated is a Desperate Attempt to Demonize and Destroy the Control Group. That's those of us who have not had the vaccine. And the subtitle says, The ruling class is very worried about noncompliant citizens. And he starts out with a couple of visual aids. You're going to have to click on the article to, to see this for yourself. But he says, I turn your attention to a side-by-side comparison map comparing the COVID pandemic of last year to this year. 
It is a true photo worth a million words tweet from Rational Grounds Woke Zombie. So you're looking at November 19th, 2020 versus November 19th, 2021. And here's the map showing, you know, the incidence of COVID cases across the U.S. The maps are virtually indistinguishable in terms of where the concentration of these cases are versus, you know, the places where they weren't. The symmetry, in fact, he says, is indeed amazing. And the conclusion after over 600 days of COVID mania could not be more clear. Not a single public health expert hailed mitigation or suppression measure, including the COVID shots, has done anything significant to solve the reality that lots of people get sick during their their area's annual respiratory season. This global war on a virus is going about as well as the war on Afghanistan went when it came to eliminating the Taliban. So again, I'm I'm not sharing this with you to make you feel bad or to, to rub your face in it. These are hard facts for some people to face. But they're also very welcome facts for those of us who are like, oh man, I'm so glad that I've been standing on principle. The bottom line is the lockdowns failed to stop a virus. The universal masking regime failed to stop a virus. The millions and millions of societal restrictions and business closures failed to stop a virus. And now it's becoming pretty clear that the highly touted miracle mRNA shots are failing to stop a virus. But the crazy part is instead of accepting this reality, world governments are doubling, tripling, and quadrupling down on the madness. Despite incredibly high compliance rates with an estimated 7.5 plus billion COVID shots delivered in arms, the mRNA cure has not lived up to its admittedly impossible to achieve standards. In six months, we went from, you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. That's uh, Joe Biden, by the way. There's a link to the video of him saying those actual words. And the uh, director of the CDC saying, vaccinated people do not carry the virus. They don't get the virus and they don't get sick. We've gone from that to, oh, and this one from Dr. Anthony Fauci. All three vaccines are 100% effective against hospitalization and death. And now we sit at our current reality of another season of lockdowns, restrictions, and the usual nonsensical public health measures. 7.5 billion plus shots later, Jordan Schachtel says those of us who followed the data closely have found out that all of the aforementioned statements endorsed by the most renowned government health officials in the world were complete nonsense, weapons-grade nonsense. They were nowhere near remotely close to even representing a scintilla of truth. Today we know that the shots serve as something akin to a potential six- to nine-month prophylactic with unknown long-term side effects. The expiring efficacy, which was best observed through first-mover nations like Israel and Ireland, brought about the booster shot regime, but no recognition from world governments that the shots seemed to be expiring. And the boosters have been sold under this weird idea that you can get extra protection even though you've been told you were already fully vaccinated. Government health officials and major pharmaceutical companies have leveraged these half-truths as part of a CYA campaign for elected officials and a money grab for Pfizer, Moderna, and those interested in in injecting five-year-olds with expiring experimental shots. And the booster, which is the exact same formulation as the original shots, unsurprisingly, 
seems to have the same lack of virus-killing power as the first two shots. Then he includes this uh, this visual of the seven-day rolling averages of new cases per 100,000, showing the European Union, which is, you know, it's keeping a fairly steady, um, you know, rate compared to Gibraltar, the most vaccinated place on Earth. 100% of the population in Gibraltar is vaccinated. 40% have had the booster. And yet where the European Union is looking at a seven-day rolling average of new cases per 100,000, they're looking at about 40 cases per 100,000. Gibraltar is up around four times that number, 160 cases per 100,000. What is going on there? Jordan Schachtel says, you and I, we're not the majority here, sadly. Those of, us who are th- those of us who are thinking clearly about this issue are a growing coalition, but we still face an uphill battle. World governments, with the assistance of big tech, have convinced the masses without any legitimate evidence that it's the unvaccinated who are responsible for our continuing COVID program, problem. Rather. In fact, he says, check out the logic used by Austria, the first Western country to mandate COVID shots on the entire population. Chancellor Alexander Schallenberg, who imposed a nationwide lockdown on his country last week, says increasing the vaccination rate, and I think we're all in agreement on this, is the only way to break out of this vicious cycle of viral waves and lockdown discussions for good. Really? (laughs) He says, we don't want a fifth, sixth, and seventh wave. So that's why they had police out randomly checking the vaccination of of vaccination status of shoppers after locking down and denying the unvaccinated any place in public. Now they're talking about they're going to do mandatory compulsory vaccinations first part of next year. Why can't they admit they're wrong? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So again, we're taking a bit of a deep dive here on uh, the war on the unvaccinated. And on the one hand, you know, there's a part of me that feels really calm in the sense that uh, I'm, I'm quite uh, comfortable with committing to the truth that I think the best course, at least for me, was to, to say absolutely not to the vaccine and the more information that comes out about the waning effects of the effectiveness of the vaccine and you know we're gonna have to have boosters you'll probably need boosters every six months for the rest of your life i think no i'm glad i didn't sign up for that but i want to make clear i'm not trying to for those of you who've had the vaccine some of you fall into the category where you are at greater risk and it makes sense for people who are at greater risk from comorbidities or age or other circumstances to get the vaccine. But I have to wonder, and then this is not to make you feel guilty, if, if you're the kind of person who believes, well, we need to punish the unvaccinated for not going along with this. I'm going to try to convince you in the nicest possible way. You're wrong. You're on the wrong side of history. People who have to resort to forcing other people to do what they want or what they think is the right thing to do are never on the right side of history. If you can't persuade people 
That's not a symbol that I'm just so evil, I just can't see how wise you are. It's more of an indication that you're not making the case or there's contradictory evidence that's outweighing whatever you're saying. My my eyes are seeing things that uh, that will not permit me to reconcile what you're telling me with the, the reality or the facts that I'm seeing before me. So when I hear, you know, the Swiss, or I'm not the Swiss, the uh, Austrian chancellor saying, it hurts that such measures still have to be taken. I'm pretty skeptical as Austria is reimposing full lockdown, planning to make COVID vaccines compulsory. And in the words of Jordan Schachtel, when, when, when Schallenberg says it's painful that we have to do this, he's lying. And he knows it. Because the shots will not prevent another wave of sickness. These waves are simply the reality of a seasonal respiratory effect that happens every single year. And the global ruling class have been lying to the masses for a long time. They would rather not admit to all of these sunk costs so the political elite will continue to uphold the myth that these COVID shots are still some kind of magic bullet that they are not. Now, just as an aside, I really believe part of this has to do with if we don't get everybody vaccinated, if we don't make everybody take the shot, if there are negative effects, if there are, you know, immune deficiencies that crop up years down the road, that's going to be very apparent when people who didn't get the shot aren't suffering from those side effects. So I think they're looking for plausible deniability. Well, if everybody gets the shot, then really we have no control group and there's nobody we can point to to say, hey, how come his face isn't falling off, but everybody else who got the shot's face is? Because if everybody has the shot, well, we don't know why everybody's faces are falling off. It must be some something new, a new crisis of some sort. Anyway, back to the article. The idea is those who did not comply from the beginning of COVID mania serve to pose the biggest threat to the power of these maniacal politicians. That's why they're attacking us so ferociously. The political elite pretend as if they care about COVID, but it's not the virus that's keeping them up at night. It's those pesky individuals who refuse to bend their knee. Those are the ones in the crosshairs. The control group is the biggest threat to the people in power. They simply can't survive the political ramifications of a control group outperforming the citizens living under the weight of destructive COVID mania mandates and societal edicts. Now, that's some pretty painful truth. And I, I'm my job here is not to leave you, you know, feeling traumatized and, and beat up by this kind of stuff. I mean, I have family members who have taken the vaccine. I worry for their well-being. Now, knock on wood, the, the responses that they've had to the vaccine have so far been very, very minor. One of my daughters uh, actually had a, a, a bit of a reaction, but, uh, you know, it, it wasn't anything, you know, major or, or you know, life-altering. But when you start to see stories popping up about, uh, hey, this uh, this youth athlete suddenly dropped dead or, you know, these these cardiologists who are now treating young people with myocarditis or pericarditis. I mean, something is just a little bit off. And this is not a blanket condemnation of all vaccines. It's just that there's from the very beginning, the the insistence and the the absolute irrational 
push that everybody has to do this, everybody has to do this, has, has set off red flags, at least in my mind. I don't like to be forced. I learned a long time ago what my rights are. I learned that I only have the, such rights as I'm willing to claim, use, and defend. But even so, I try to do it with, with an attitude of love and with an attitude of meekness. Like, I'm, I'm not saying you have to do this too or else. But we're getting to the point where, you know, those of us who feel this way about I'm not going to be forced to do this medical procedure against my will, we're having to draw a pretty hard line. People are having to choose between their livelihoods, sometimes between, you know, family relationships. It's a pretty safe bet. You know somebody. Maybe you are somebody who's having to face tough decisions because people are asking questions. Well, before we get together for Thanksgiving this year... um, Everybody vaccinated in your family, and there are people who are taking the hard line saying, well, if you're not, then we can't get together. Man, that's sad. And I looked at the latest statistics as far as the survivability rate for those who get COVID. It's still 99%, 99-plus percent, as long as you're under the age of, uh, of 70 Now, once you get above the age of 70, well, you know, your chances of survival drop to about 94%. Now, it can be a serious illness. I'm not going to pretend there's no virus out there. I'm not going to, you know, go down the rabbit hole of, you know, this is all just just fake. I think there's a legitimate man-made virus that has somehow escaped or been unleashed on us. But for people with a healthy immune system, it really isn't that big of a deal. And for those who are at risk, it can be a big deal. But those who are at risk should know, you know, that they're at risk and take the steps to mitigate those risks. If that means shelter in place, then by all means, shelter in place. If that means, you know, wear a mask when you're out in public, then do it. If that means, yeah, I probably better get the vaccine, by all means, do it. But we're crossing a line when we start to pretend that, but this is so important, we need to vaccinate everybody. Can you think of another virus or another illness where there has been this push for such mandatory vaccination? And I believe with George, I believe what Jordan Schachtel is pointing out here is it's not so much the virus that they're trying to get people inoculated against as the sense that you can defy what people in authority are telling you. These politicians are terrified that accountability is coming. And I don't know if they're thinking of it in terms of, well, it's accountability, you know, in a court of law. They're going to be locked away for the rest of their lives for some of the horrific decisions they've made. Or if they're thinking, man, this is going to be accountability at the end of a noose. Maybe it's a combination of both. I don't know. How far are they prepared to go to destroy people's lives? Because I guess that's, that's going to be indicative of how far would justice require, you know, that they be taken to pay for those mistakes? But they certainly don't want to turn loose of power, and they certainly don't want to concede that, you know what, people have the power to resist. I'm sorry, that's a, it seems like it's kind of a dark outlook here. Well, all I can say is, throughout the ages, there's always been pushback, there has always been opposition to personal freedom, and respect for your personal autonomy. Okay, this is no exception. Just understand that it's important that you 
Stand firm in your convictions if your decision is that you're not going to be forced. And I stand with you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to uh, just ask you, take a moment, go to my show notes, click on one of the sponsor links. That's the one titled uh, GovernYourIncome.com. This is one of my sponsors, and I, I want you to just take a look at what they have to offer. If you are someone who, for instance, is facing the possible loss of job because, uh, you know, your, your company is saying, well, we've got to follow the directives and, you know, mandate that everybody gets vaccinated, maybe it's time to work for yourself. And maybe day trading on the foreign exchange, the foreign currency exchange markets is something that would make sense to you. I mean, you can do it from anywhere. You have an Internet signal. It is, uh, it's not for everybody. But GovernYourIncome.com, go to that website. It will take you to a demo page. You can actually try the software. I think it's 10 bucks to download the software. Try it for yourself and see how it works. Bottom line is, if you think, this is what I want to do, it will connect you up with a company that will train you how to do this day trading. They will train you to the point, I mean, they train you well enough that they will actually give you company money to work with to, to do your day trading. That's a pretty strong vote of confidence. So check it out. Again, if it's not for you, that's fine. Move on. But it's for somebody. I don't know who that somebody is, but if you're listening, knock, knock, there's opportunity. Do we have a civic duty to oppose bureaucratic tyranny? I guess that's going to, you know, who you're asking, they're going to think about, okay, well, what are the costs? You know, what's the risk here? (laughs) We all want to make sure, you know, I'm going to get through with my hide intact, pun intended. Well, Barry Brownstein says, yes, we do have a civic duty. In fact, we have a moral duty as well. His latest essay actually provides some great historical lessons about what that looks like and what we might do today. The subtitle here, and this is from his uh, Substack uh, account, says it's a a society that embraces coerced medical choices, has chosen a path away from social cooperation and towards the disintegration of society. Now, Barry Brownstein, in his article, says the searing Russian novel Life and Fate by Vasily Grossman is one of the greatest examinations of totalitarianism ever written. Based on his experiences under Stalin, Grossman depicts how humanity withers under tyranny. He says Grossman's book is not a uh, dystopian novel, yet few books better teach how force is used to control a population by not only restricting liberty, but also by exploiting weaknesses in human nature. Along a flank of the Stalingrad front, two colonels talk about the terrible impact of bureaucrats and bureaucracy. So one colonel tells this story, quote, There was an infantry detachment that had been surrounded. The men had nothing to eat. A squadron was ordered to drop them some food by parachute. And then the quartermaster refused to issue the food. He said he needed a signature on the delivery slip. How could the men below sign what had been, for what had been dropped by parachute? And he wouldn't budge. Finally, he received an order from above. The other colonel says bureaucracy can be much more terrifying than that. And then he shares this story. Remember the order? Not one step back. There was one place where the Germans were mowing our men down by the hundred. All we needed to do was withdraw over the brow of the hill. 
Strategically, it would have made no difference, and we'd have saved our men and equipment, but the orders were not one step back. So the men perished, and their equipment was destroyed. Now, Barry Brownstein says the conversation continues, and then Grossman has one colonel deliver the punchline. What's really terrifying is when you realize that bureaucracy isn't simply a growth on the body of the state. If it were only that, it could be cut off. No, bureaucracy is the very essence of the state. So the forces making bureaucracy arbitrary, capricious, and impervious to reason, the very essence of the state, are the same in America as they were in Grossman's Soviet Union. Brownstein Brownstein says, We all have our stories of bureaucratic indifference, and now, during COVID, indifference has become cruel. Just ask the relatives of former Governor Cuomo's nursing home victims or the former health angels who gained natural immunity and now face termination for refusing the vaccine mandate. In his book, Bureaucracy, Ludwig von Mises explains the ultimate basis of an all-around bureaucratic system is violence. As for the bureaucrats making the rules, Mises observes, he who is unfit to serve his fellow citizens wants to rule them. Oh, man, that needs to be a bumper sticker. Today, has Grossman's World War II not one step back become the phrase, if it saves one life? Egypius is a pseudonymous critic of COVID policies, and he recently explored how the not one step back mindset has shaped COVID policy. Quote, all containment policies since March 2020 flow from two fundamental premises that together form a pandemic doctrine. Number one, all pandemic infections are regrettable and to be prevented. Number two, it is possible to control pandemics via social or medical technology. Before 2020, nobody believed either, uh, nobody anywhere believed either of these things, not despite, but because of long experience with semi-regular pandemic influenza outbreaks. Now, Egypius explores the motives of the autonomous, undirected actions of a million nameless, faceless bureaucrats, which nobody can any longer control. Quote, everything since then has been the autonomous force of the pandemic doctrine and its terrible demands. As containment policies have failed one after the other, they've left a vortex of disconfirmed expectancy in their wake, turning early political and bureaucratic advocates of containment into truly deranged zealots. The policies themselves, though they are articles of faith, have little or no real-world effect, and this has had curious consequences. It became important for all countries to do as many useless things as possible and more or less the same useless things as everyone else. Bureaucracies that rejected a specific measure risked being blamed for whatever happened next. And without controls, the failure of containment could always be rewritten and be rewritten always and forever as success. Imagine how many more deaths we would have had if we had never locked down. End quote. Now, Barry Brownstein says, look, San Francisco bureaucrats demand five-year-old children be vaccinated in order to be admitted to indoor places. Will the parents of tall four-year-old children have to carry birth certificates to prove their children aren't five? School, school bureaucrats demand special needs children with breathing issues be placed in plexiglass cubicles. On a federal level, OSHA bureaucrats issue rules that contain a new cadre of inspectors empowered to level $13,600 per worker fines for those firms violating vaccine mandates. Mandates that do nothing to control the spread of COVID. As essential services continue to deteriorate and shelves continue to empty, will bureaucrats change their guidelines? 
Egypius predicts the COVID totalitarian toothpaste will never go back in the tube. So faced with this illiberal onslaught from politicians and bureaucrats, Barry Brownstein says it seems there's little we can do but weep in despair. After all, you might reason, what can one person do? Mises is clear, such a defeatist mindset forfeits your civic duties. Now keep in mind, bureaucracy was written in 1944. And of course, Mises had nothing to say about the COVID bureaucracy. However, his advice on opposing the socialist bureaucracy is applicable today. And this is the payoff for this wonderful article. Lesson one, oppose bureaucrats with vigor, but avoid name calling. Mises explored the propaganda trip of, trick rather of those promoting socialism in Western countries. Promoters of socialism extol the blessings which socialism has in store for mankind, but they have never attempted to prove their fallacious dogmas or still less to refute the objections raised by the economists. Instead, they call their adversaries names and cast suspicion upon their motives. Today, politicians and bureaucrats use the same strategy to besmirch opponents of failed COVID policies. Has anything changed since Mises observed the average citizen cannot see through these stratagems? If you are swayed by propaganda that encourages us versus them name-calling, you are being manipulated to turn toward the darkest corners of your mind. Lesson two, encourage others to broaden their reading and listening beyond the orthodoxy. To combat socialism, Mises recommended economic studies as a civic duty. Now, one doesn't have to become an economist to see through propaganda. Mises explains, quote, Only a man conversant with the main problems of economics is in a position to form an independent opinion on the problems involved. All the others are merely repeating what they've picked up along the way, or by the way, rather. They are an easy prey to demagogic swindlers and idiotic quacks. Their gullibility is the most serious menace to the preservation of democracy and to Western civilization, end quote. Now, Mises clarified, the aim of the population or popularization of economic studies isn't to make every man an economist. The idea is to equip the citizen for his civic functions in community life. Mises warned it is hopeless to stop the trend toward bureaucratization by the mere expression of indignation and by a nostalgic glorification of the good old times. So Barry Brownstein says, applying this lesson today, you don't have to be a physician or epidemiologist to become conversant with basic COVID issues. Official propaganda might claim that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, that natural immunity doesn't exist and your five-year-old child urgently needs a COVID vaccination. But you can look at the evidence for yourself. We're going to come back to this excellent article in just a few moments. If you want to check it out in the show notes, just go to thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I'm sharing another excellent essay from Barry Brownstein. If you haven't subscribed to his, his Substack, you're missing a great opportunity. And, and actually, Barry reached out to me a few weeks ago, and I need to have him on the show. He has indicated he would be willing to come on my show as a guest. So, Barry, I apologize. I'm sorry that I, I'm, I'm, I'm reading your essays, but uh, I look forward to the chance we can talk in person. Um, I really I love his take. I, I just think he has a very positive, 
very empowering way of approaching these subjects. And it never devolves into just finger pointing and name calling and, you know, browbeating and shaming people. There's substance here. And this is one of the reasons why I find light in the things that he's sharing. And that's why I'm encouraging you to look at them as well. Um, what you do with that information, of course, is up to you. But uh, that's, that's the criteria by which I'm, I'm looking for good material to share with my audience. Because if, if it doesn't contain light... If, it, if it's taking you to the darker corners of your mind, as, as he puts it, it's, um, it's not something worthwhile. So let's go back here. Lessons to oppose bureaucracy. These are from Ludwig von Mises. One was oppose bureaucrats with vigor but avoid name-calling. Lesson two, encourage others to broaden their reading and listening beyond the orthodoxy. Lesson three is oppose all censorship. Propaganda, Mises alerts us, is one of the worst evils of bureaucracy. Propaganda is full of lies, fallacies, and superstitions. And Mises adds these prescient words, The liars must be afraid of the truth and are therefore driven to suppress its pronouncement. Lenin and Hitler knew very well why they abolished freedom of thought, speech, and press, and why they closed the frontiers of their countries to any import of ideas from abroad. So Barry Brownstein says, no matter where you stand on a COVID issue, freedom and scientific progress depend on your opposition to the censorship of opposing views. Censors in America are not driven by better motivations than Stalin, Hitler, or Mao. Censors want to abolish critical thinking and pave the way for imposition without opposition of any program they deem necessary. Lesson number four, oppose rule by elites. If COVID bureaucrats have run wild, gullible citizenry is to blame. The plain citizens are mistaken in complaining that the bureaucrats have arrogated powers. They themselves and their mandatories have abandoned their sovereignty. Their ignorance of fundamental problems of economics has made the professional specialists supreme. So Mises warned against rule by elite experts saying, but democracy becomes impractical if the eminent citizens, the intellectual leaders of the community, are not in a position to form their own opinion on the basic social, economic, and political principles of policies. If the citizens are under the intellectual hegemony of the bureaucratic professionals, society breaks up into two castes, the ruling professionals, the Brahmins, and the gullible citizenry. Then despotism emerges, whatever the wording of constitutions and laws may be. Now, Mises ended his book with this instruction. How can people determine their own affairs if they're too indifferent to gain through their own thinking and independent judgment on fundamental political and economic problems? Democracy is not a good that people can enjoy without trouble. It is, on the contrary, a treasure that must be daily defended and conquered anew by strenuous effort. End quote. Now, Barry Brownstein says, watching CNN or Fox and then repeating, they say, is not the strenuous effort Mises suggested. Mises would warn against dismissing brave voices diligently questioning the orthodoxy. Entrepreneur Steve Kirsch is just one example of a courageous voice who some would dismiss as not being a trained health professional. You can come to a different conclusion. If we have a civic duty to learn about immunity, pandemics, and health, we also have an equally important moral duty. This is lesson number five. We have a moral duty to see the humanity in others. Barry says, recently I was speaking to a physician friend whose politics are progressive, but who sees himself as holding liberal values. 
I mentioned how disturbed I was about the ongoing demonization by bureaucrats and politicians of those who've chosen not to be vaccinated. Now, this physician said this is indeed regrettable, but he chastised me. I I must understand the context. Those doing the demonizations are trying to save lives. Now, although this doctor himself had suffered a significant vaccine injury from the 2009 H1N1 vaccine, he then recited the bureaucratic propaganda for current vaccine policies. To keep his standing in the medical community, he carefully weighs the dangers to his career of stepping too far away from the official narrative. He cares about patients, yet the ties of his medical tribe compromise his judgment. If you say, I must feed my family, I cannot oppose mandates, no one will fault you. If you say, I have no time to study the issue and make my own judgments, you can still take a moral stand against coercing and demonizing others. You can stand for the humanity in each person and eschew tribal hatreds. There's no need to harass others by cooperating with petty bureaucrats. In his best-known work, I and Thou, the Vienna-born philosopher Martin Buber, I hope I'm saying his name right, Buber, (laughs) sorry, observed two fundamental ways of seeing the world, I-thou or I-it. Through the I-it lens, others are seen as less than us, either as objects who help us or obstacles that get in our way. By the way, that's how sociopaths see the world too, just saying. Tribalism at its core looks at the world through I-it eyes. In the great Russian novel, The Brothers Kamarazov, Dostoevsky tells of Fyodor Pavlovich who desires to revenge himself on everyone for his own unseemliness. Pavlovich remembers being asked, Why do you hate so-and-so so much? Pavlovich had responded, I tell you, he has done me no harm, but I played him a dirty trick, and I have, and ever since I have hated him. Now today, those we once called angels, healthcare professionals, airline employees, first responders, grocery store cashiers who served us while others worked at home over Zoom, are having dirty tricks played against them. If they refuse mandates, they are fired. It's human nature to experience dissonance when we behave poorly. Notice a moment when you catch yourself seeing the world through I-it eyes, when you fail to see the humanity in another. In the next moment, you may notice there's an itch you need to scratch. The itch is a felt need to justify your I-it thinking. Now, you may relieve the itch by cheering at a propagandistic pronouncement, portraying the unvaccinated as a threat to you. Whew, you may be thinking, I'm really not a bad person. I'm just defending myself against those who would harm me. In justifying I-it thinking, moral duty is abandoned. So Brownstein says we are now at a crossroads. How will we resolve our dissonance when we fail to see the humanity in others? One path is to scratch the need to feel innocent and virtuous. As Dostoevsky explained, we tend to become outraged at those we've harmed. The other path is to resolve our dissonance by looking at our actions without justifying our actions. In that space, clarity and moral courage arise. Our civic and moral duty requires us to resist all inhumane demonizers professing there is only one true way and that they are the keepers of that way. In his seminal work, Human Action, Mises wrote, A man who chooses between drinking a glass of milk and a glass of solution of potassium cyanide does not choose between two beverages. He chooses between life and death. A society that chooses between capitalism and socialism does not choose between two social systems. It chooses between social cooperation and the disintegration of society. 
So he says, in the spirit of Mises, I offer this. A society that embraces coerced medical choices has chosen a path away from social cooperation and toward the disintegration of society. Great stuff there. And by the way, you can you can subscribe to Barry Brownstein's Substack. That's one option. Um, you can also subscribe. This was also published on the American Institute for Economic Research or AIER.org website. I've got them included in my uh, resources for wrong thinkers section of my website at the com. Look, I'm not telling I've got all the answers. I don't. I'm I am far from the smartest person you're ever going to meet. But I really have a clearly defined sense of right and wrong, and I have a clearly defined sense of just how important these rights are, not just for me, but for everybody. And so I'm willing to risk, you know, uh, being the fool. I'm willing to put my ignorance out there and stick my neck out for the sake of encouraging others to, to think more deeply, to think more clearly about these issues. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you I spend the vast majority of my day looking for the best information that I can find that I can then share with you. And just for the sake of, you know, giving you something to think about, what I hope is some good, nutritious food for thought. You can snack on it if you want. You can feast on it if you want. The show notes are there for the purpose of those people who want to seriously sit down and pursue these subjects in greater detail. Again, it's not because I'm smart. I'm just very blessed that uh, I have made a lot of connections and have a lot of uh, a lot of directions to turn if I want solid information on the issues that we confront these days. So, I wish you the very best in your quest for knowledge, and I thank you again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This is the Brian Hyde Show.